before we read God's word, I want to call your attention to the fact that this is the second day of May, and um, this year, as a church body, every month, we are engaging in a different spiritual practice, and the spiritual practice for May is to try our best once an hour to draw our hearts and our minds to the presence of God. And we don't have to ask for the presence of God because we have it through Christ, through the Holy Spirit. But even in the midst of going through singing songs and reading scripture, I know that there's a way in which we can do it and it feels rote. So before we read, I just want to give you a few moments of silence to ask to be aware of God's presence and ask for him to speak to us through his word this morning. This is Acts chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me, for John baptized you with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it's not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who is taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, about half the time when I preach, I tell a story and mention that I was in a band called Cool Hand Luke for about 13 years, and in seminary they said, don't tell lots of stories about yourself. It's not about you. And I'm, I want to, you know, echo, it's not about me, but the only stories I know are the ones about me. So you're getting another one this morning. Um, <clears throat> so one of the most moving shows, I would say the probably most moving show that we ever played as a band was in the summer of 2003 at a Christian music festival in Bushnell, Illinois, called Cornerstone. And at that point, uh, the three of us in Cool Hand Luke had been together for five years. That spring, we had just done a big tour with Switchfoot when they were blowing up and were number one on MTV. And uh, we had just released our second album, and it was released on a label and had marketing and 
you know, we saw our names in magazines and things like that. And I'm not trying to spin it like we were ever some big deal. And it hits me, I wouldn't have to explain all this to you if we were a big deal. You would just already know about my band. Um, <clears throat> so I'm not trying to say that we were a big deal, but this was like the height of our success. And at that point in our career, that show at Cornerstone was the largest audience we'd ever played before. So we had a lot to celebrate, but as we took the stage, we were all in tears and it didn't really stop. We prayed, we played, and I was um, crying so hard that I could hardly sing the words to the songs. And the reason that we were crying is because Jason, who is our guitar player, this was his last show with us. Um, I had met him when he was a goofy 17-year-old kid and over that five years, he had grown into a really godly young man and he had become my best friend. And um, if I'm honest, <clears throat> it was hard for me to see him go. He had met a girl and fallen in love and was engaged. And so God was calling him to the next chapter, but I didn't know how to picture Cohen Luke without Jason. And so my sense of loss kind of trumped my joy for him. But that day in a field in nowhere, Illinois, um, I put aside my pettiness and my jealousy and my selfishness, and I celebrated my friend as we played music together one last time. So if you can imagine the range of emotions that we were feeling that day, um, joy and yet loss and hope and yet fear, um, if you can imagine all the different things that we were feeling, it may just scrape the surface of what Jesus' apostles were feeling as they watched Jesus go up and up and up until he was obscured by clouds. So we're going we're gonna to think about that today. They knew this, that this was all for the best, and yet they had no clue how to move on from here because this is all that they knew. Walking with Jesus, following Jesus is all they knew, but they couldn't follow him where he went. We're going to walk through the passage, and we're going to consider the ascension, but I also don't want to just look at it as um, these objective facts or Maybe even for you, it feels like a folk legend and a flannel graph from when you were a little kid. Um, but I want to actually consider the apostles were real people with real emotions, and this was their last encounter with Jesus, this side of heaven. So if you look at verse 1, it tells us two important things about the book of Acts. It tells us that Acts is a sequel, and it's addressed to someone named Theophilus. Now, the author of Acts doesn't name himself in the book, but the earliest manuscripts that we have attribute Acts to Luke, the same Luke who wrote the Gospel of Luke. And just as a refresher, um, Luke was not an apostle himself, but he traveled with Paul and he also was around the other apostles, so he had very good sources for his books. The Gospel of Luke is also addressed to Theophilus, and Acts picks up right where Luke left off, so it makes sense that Acts would be the sequel to Luke. Um, 
Acts is addressed to Theophilus, but we don't actually know who that is. Some people think that Theophilus may have been a Roman official that Luke was sort of presenting the gospel to. Some people think that Theophilus may have been a wealthy Christ follower who had commissioned Luke to write these books. And other people think that Theophilus wasn't an actual person at all, that it was kind of a general term because Luke was writing in Greek. Theos means God in Greek. Um, Philo means friend in Greek. And so Theophilus would have meant something like friend of God. So some people think that um, Luke may have just been writing these to anyone who considers themselves a friend of God. But in the end, it's ambiguous. And even the title Acts is a little bit ambiguous. Uh, Luke didn't give it that title himself. It was given the title later. But um, it's often called the Acts of the Apostles. But I kind of follow N.T. Wright and John Stott and some other folks who recommend that it's better to be called the Acts of Jesus Christ. And here's why. If you were to kind of give a broad overview of the gospel of Luke, you would probably say something like it's an account of what Jesus did in his life. So it deals with his life, his death and his resurrection. But I want you to look at verse one and notice that Luke says it dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. In other words, the doing and the teaching wasn't over. So you could say that the gospel of Luke is what Jesus began to do and teach here on earth. And Acts covers what Jesus began to do and teach from heaven. And of course, he did this through the power of the Holy Spirit and he used the apostles and the early church and all of these things. Now, if you've ever gotten into a TV show that's kind of like a serial drama with a, you know, ongoing story arc, you'll know that the first 30 seconds to a minute is usually a montage of scenes from previous episodes that kind of uh, prime your memory and give you a little heads up about what might be coming ahead in this one. And I realize this is probably like the fourth time I've mentioned Lost in a sermon, but uh, that was the first show like that that I ever watched. And it was, um, I'm the old dude who talks about a show that's been off the air for like 10 years. And it was back before streaming and all that stuff. So it was very exciting every week waiting for that next episode. And the first thing that you would hear was the voice of one of the writers, Carlton Cuse. And he would say, previously on Lost. And then you knew it was coming. And Uh, The show Lost, if you didn't watch it, um, had lots of flashbacks and even flash forwards. So it wasn't always told in a linear chronological fashion. So even the recap bounced around in the timeline. And uh, that's kind of what the first five verses of Acts do. It's really like Luke saying previously in the Acts of Jesus Christ. Um, And yeah, I've had two services now and my Carlton Cuse impression isn't any better. So I apologize for that. But as Luke wrote Acts, he may not have intentionally been changing the chronology and zooming in and out on different scenes, but that's what he does. And I'll show you what I mean. Uh, So verse one is this broad overview saying 
The Gospel of Luke is about what Jesus began to do and teach. But then in verse 2, he zooms in close and it says, until the day when he was taken up, after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. So there are three things that Luke kind of zooms in on that Jesus was taken up, that Jesus gave commands through the Holy Spirit, and that the commands were given to chosen apostles. So ironically, these happen in the reverse order of how he names them. So if we move chronologically, the first thing that would have happened was Jesus called the apostles. And you can read those accounts in all four gospels. And you may recall, I've talked about this before, uh, Jesus was like a first century rabbi. And the way rabbis worked is they were these teachers and people who wanted to be their disciples would come to them and ask if they could follow them. But it wasn't that way with Jesus. He went to the apostles and he called them and said, follow me. And he even reminds them of this in John 15. In one of his last conversations with them before he was betrayed, he said, you did not choose me, but I chose you. So next, if we're looking at verse two in chronological order, Jesus gave commands through the Holy Spirit. And in a sense, Jesus did this throughout his ministry, but Luke's talking about specifically the commands that Jesus gave following his resurrection. So we can find an account of that at the end of Matthew. It's what has come to be known as the Great Commission. And this is what it says. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. In Luke 24, the end of Luke's gospel, we hear again Jesus teaching in the Holy Spirit. But it It's worded a little bit differently. Luke captures a different part of the conversation than Matthew did. And this is what it says in Luke 24. Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. And then Jesus goes on to tell them that he's sending the spirit and that they're to stay there in the city until he comes. And finally, in chronological order, still in verse two, Jesus was taken up, which is what we mean when we refer to the ascension. And this is interesting, but of the four gospels, Luke was really probably the only one who mentions the ascension. If you look at the end of Mark in your Bible, the very last sentence mentions something about the ascension, but those last few verses are probably in brackets, and there's probably going to be a footnote that says the earliest manuscripts don't include these parts. So biblical historians think that those last few verses probably weren't in Mark's original gospel, which means we only get the ascension account in the gospel of Luke. And this is what he says. And he led them out as far as Bethany, and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. While he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. So verse 1 gives a very broad overview of the Gospel of Luke. Verse 2 zooms in and gives a slightly different recap of things that happened in Luke's Gospel And then verse three recaps the end of Luke's gospel in yet a third way. And it zooms in on the time between Jesus' resurrection and the ascension. So look at verse three with me. It says, 
He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. So this tells us some new information that Jesus was around for 40 days before he ascended into heaven. And it's incredibly significant that Jesus didn't ascend as soon as he was resurrected, but rather presented himself alive to them during 40 days. And it's significant for two reasons that you can find right here in the text. Those 40 days allowed Jesus to prove he was actually alive. And those 40 days allowed Jesus to speak about the kingdom of God. So if you think about it, if Jesus had just busted out of the tomb and went straight up to heaven, no one would have actually known for sure that he was alive. No one, including Mary, no one, including Peter, who at this point was beating himself up for denying Christ, no one, including doubting Thomas, no one would have known that he was alive. But this is what Tyler has been preaching on ever since Easter, people encountering Jesus when he was supposed to have been dead. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, which is Peter, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. So this is the apostle Paul writing years after the fact, saying there's still over 500 people alive today that you can go to and they can tell you about seeing the risen Christ. And we know from Luke and John that he wasn't some blurry apparition or a ghost because he ate with them and he walked with them and he talked with them. So it was important that Jesus established himself as a living, breathing, resurrected human over the course of those 40 days. And here in Acts chapter 1 verse 3, Luke also tells us that Jesus spoke about the kingdom of God during those 40 days. And that's not a lot different from what he did before the crucifixion. In fact, I imagine that Jesus speaking about the kingdom of God was one of the ways that the apostles were sure that it was him. But if you think about the way that Jesus spoke about the kingdom of God, if you think back to the kingdom parables, he was saying, this is what the kingdom of God is like. And he's not talking to them about that anymore. Jesus was telling them the role that they would actually play in the kingdom of God. He's telling you and me the role that we can play in the kingdom of God. Verses four and five sum up what Jesus said to them during those 40 days. Look with me. And while staying with them, and just geeky Bible fact, staying with them can also be translated eating with them. While staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So wait in Jerusalem and be baptized 
with the Holy Spirit. And he's been talking to them about the Holy Spirit. If you read the Gospel of John, there are multiple times that he talks about the coming of the Holy Spirit. He even says, it's, it's better for you if I go so that the Holy Spirit can come. But he's not talking about this far off thing anymore. He's saying, guys, in a few days, the Holy Spirit is here. The end of both Matthew and Luke sum up Jesus' instructions to the apostles similarly, but they add one more part to begin proclaiming the good news. And Luke doesn't leave this part out of what Jesus told the apostles, but what he does is he kind of changes camera angles again, and he tells it from a different perspective. And see, he could have just copied and pasted the end of the Gospel of Luke here. It could have been the exact same words, and there'd be nothing wrong with that. But to me, it feels like in verses 6 through 11, the last few verses of our passage we're looking at today, we're no longer looking at at this objectively um, as onlookers, but we're looking at it from the perspective of the apostles. And perspective matters. In that summer of 2003 that I told you about earlier, there was a cute young college girl who got in a car with her best friend and drove to a Christian music festival in the middle of a bunch of farmland in Illinois. And she camped out that week and she got to see lots of bands play. She got to see her favorite band play. And she got there early enough that she was pretty close to the stage. And she was even able to take pictures And then five years later, she married the singer of that band, and his name was Mark Nix. And she, uh, yeah, we can clap for that. You're clapping for me, by the way, because she she learned very quickly that Mark Nix is not nearly as cool up close as he was on stage, and uh, as much as she liked his singing, it is very annoying early in the morning. So obviously, I'm telling you the same story that I told you at the beginning, but it's told from a very different perspective. And after Brandy and I got married, she'd tell me stories about different shows that she had driven to to see us play. But um, for Brandy, just as for me, this show at Cornerstone was the most moving show. But now I got to hear about it from her perspective from what it was like to be in the audience. And uh, those photos you saw are actually from that. And Brandy told me that even though she didn't know Jason, our guitar player, personally, she was crying the whole time. And she said everyone around her was. And I frankly didn't know that because I was crying myself and caught up in the moment. I wouldn't have known that if I wasn't able to see a different perspective. Perspective matters. And so Luke, in verse 6, zooms in close to the very moment of the ascension and gives us some dialogue that we don't get in any of the other Gospels. So look at verse 6 with me. It says, So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And I want to say, I realize I've set a very serious tone, but I think this verse is pretty funny, and I don't know if it's supposed to be, but it strikes me as funny, and I'll just explain why. Um, You've maybe heard me before make the case that I believe 
the apostles during Jesus' ministry were probably teenage boys. And I am not knocking on teenage boys. I used to be one. They're great. You can learn a lot from them. But if you, if I were to say, what words come to mind when I say adolescent male? You probably wouldn't say wisdom, listening skills, abstract reasoning, focus. Um, so just know it, it really is neither here nor there, whether you buy my theory that they were teenagers. And again, if you want to know why I can talk to you about that, but just know that's what I picture when I hear this. And, uh, so it strikes me as pretty funny that after Jesus has taught them about the kingdom of God for 40 days, and it's down to the final moment. And I do think Jesus would have let them know, like, this is it guys. Their question shows that they really didn't get it at all. Today is our daughter Lucy's third birthday, and for better or for worse, she's more or less addicted to pacifiers still, and I realize that um, many of you are probably judging me uh, for the fact that uh, she's turning three and still has pacifiers. We call them passies, by the way, but um, we do limit it just to her sleep times, but this, this week we've been like, all right. Your birthday's coming up. You're going to be a big girl. No more passies, right? Right. I'm going to be a big girl. No more passies. All right. We got it. And so we decided this week for her afternoon nap to take it away so that it would kind of like prep her for what just going, you know, cold turkey will be like. And we're like, no naps, for, you know, no passies for nap time. Right? Right. We got it. And our nanny Meredith was like, you know, talking to her about it all morning. And then nap time came around and she was not happy. And Meredith told us it was immediately clear to her. She had been saying she understood what that meant, but she clearly did not understand what it meant that she was not going to have passies at nap time. So that's where we are with the apostles in verse six. They say, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Jesus has been talking about loving your enemy, blessing those who persecute you and serving one another. He's been talking about the coming of the Holy Spirit and then the kingdom of God. And then the apostles are basically like, Jesus, is this the part where we get to blow junk up? Do we, do we, get, to, do we get to do some cool stuff now? And, and I just picture Jesus being like, what? No, no, we're not blowing anything. I said, love your enemies. I said, love your enemies. They don't get it. Um, Jesus had been speaking to them about the kingdom of God but they're focused on the kingdom of Israel, which is to say they're focused on themselves. But we're honestly not so different from the apostles. And I don't have to quote a bunch of stats or give a commentary on Western culture for you to understand that we, all of us, are very anxious. And anxiety is all about control. We want to control things. We want to know how things are going to be paid for. We want to know that it's going to be the best. We want to know that we're going to be safe. We want to know that we won't be alone. There's so many things that we can't know, but we want to know. And in short, we want to know the future and we don't just want to know the future. We want to control the future. But think what Jesus said to Martha when she was choosing to control things instead of spend time with Jesus. 
He said, you're anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. One thing. And he goes on to say that this one thing can't be taken from you. All these other things are fleeting, but this one thing can't be taken from you. So look at Jesus' response in verse 7. He said to them, it's not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. And then in verse 8, Jesus draws their hearts and their minds back to the kingdom of God. We see they want to be an influential world power. They want to be the kingdom of Israel like it was in the Old Testament. But Jesus offers them a better power. He says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Now, I want you to look at a map of Israel with me. They will be witnesses to all that Jesus began to do and teach. And it will start right there in Jerusalem where they are. Jerusalem is the capital. If you can see, it's got a little dot above Bethlehem there. It's in the southern part. But it's not just going to stay in Jerusalem. The witness to Jesus Christ, the gospel is going to spread to all of Judea. So that whole southern region on the western side of the Dead Sea. But then it says it's not just going to stay there. It's going to go to Samaria, this region in red, this region that's smack dab in the middle of Israel, but they don't see them as Israelites because they were half-breeds in their eyes and heretics in their eyes. But it's saying the gospel of Jesus Christ is going to go to Samaria. And from there, will it stay in the geopolitical state of Israel? No. The gospel of Jesus Christ will go to the ends of the earth. The only power that we should truly seek is that power that is freely given to us. The power of the Holy Spirit. The only war that we need to wage, the only mission that we need to take up is to tell what Jesus has done and taught. And if you know Jesus Christ, you have a story to tell about what Jesus has done. And if you know Jesus Christ, you have the power of the Holy Spirit. And this morning, if you don't know Jesus Christ, you have only to accept him and cast your anxiety on him and acknowledge that you can't do it on your own. Just like we sang earlier, I need you every hour. None of us can do it on our own. And that's why Jesus died and was raised to set us free from slavery to sin. And, and that's why he ascended. And we get one brief verse in verse 9 about the glorious ascension. It says, And when he had said these things, and they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And as I tried to imagine what that was like, the thing that I always think of is seeing a space shuttle launch. Uh, 
Not long after Brandy and I moved to Florida, uh, the very last space shuttle launched, and we drove as close to the Cape as we could get and just ended up in this random field with a bunch of people. And I realize in Central Florida, chances are many of you have seen a shuttle launch or a rocket launch or something like that. And so you'll understand what I say when I say that to see that it's awesome in the literal sense of the word, because you, you feel the ground rumble and you see the smoke and then it feels like minutes go by and then the actual sound hits your ears and it rocks everything around you. And you watch it go up until it's obscured by clouds and you can't see it anymore. And even when you know you're not going to see it again, everyone's still just staring at the sky thinking maybe we'll just catch one more glimpse of it. And you stare until the smoke trails start to spread out. And then after a few moments, there's just this stillness and this silence and no one talks. And there's this overwhelming sense of, I don't know what to do now. That's what happens when we watch a man-made machine fly in the air. But these were Jesus' apostles seeing their teacher, their friend, being taken up into heaven. Can you imagine the awe? There are three questions that I think if we were there, we would have all asked, and on some level, we're all still asking. And I'm briefly going to address these three questions as we close, but these are the three questions that I think that we'd be asking. Where did Jesus go? What is he doing? And will I ever see him again? Because Jesus leaving after they had just gotten him back, it didn't feel like good news to them. It felt like another painful loss. But Jesus told them, and he tells us, it's better that I go to be with the Father. So the first question is, where did Jesus go? And Luke tells us that Jesus was taken up into heaven, but in a broad sense, that could just mean the sky. But in Hebrews 9, it tells us that Jesus went into heaven itself to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. So where did Jesus go? He went to the presence of God. And the second question is, what is he doing? And there are two things that we know for sure that Jesus is doing based on scripture, and they both have everything to do with you. The first thing we learn from Romans eight thirty four, it says that Jesus is sitting at the right hand of God, interceding for us, interceding for us. The king of all creation took on human form and came not to be served, but to serve. And even after he was glorified and ascended to the right hand of the father, he is still serving us. Interceding simply means he's praying for us. Hebrews 7 says, Jesus is able to save to the uttermost those who draw, to near, draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. 
always when you're sleeping, when you're angry at him, when you couldn't care less about him, he is interceding for you. The second thing we know that Jesus is doing is preparing a place for us. And we know this because he tells us that in John 14, it was during the Last Supper, he told his disciples that he was going to the Father and he was going to prepare a place for them. And in Jesus' day, I think this is an important historical fact. In Galilee, which is where the apostles and where Jesus lived, um, people, not all people, but lots of people um, lived in these housing complexes uh, known as an insula. And an insula is basically a combined living unit built around a courtyard. And when a son uh, was taking a bride, when he was engaged, what he would do is build on to this family insula. He wouldn't go buy a new house or find new land. He would build on to this. And then he would not go take his bride until it was finished and he could take her home. And it might take months or even years for this to happen. That's why, if you remember the parable of the 10 virgins, they're waiting for the bridegroom because they don't know how long it's going to take. They don't know when he's coming. Jesus is drawing on this imagery of the insula to tell the apostles that he's going to his father's house and he is going to build enough rooms to accommodate the entire bride of Christ, including you. Which leads to the third question and probably the biggest question, will I ever see Jesus again? So let's read the last two verses of our passage together. And while they were gazing into heaven, as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. So will you see him again? Yes, you certainly will. You certainly will. And you won't have to figure out how to get to him because he's going to come to you. Paul in 1 Thessalonians gave a word of encouragement to those who are grieving. If you are grieving, if you have lost someone that you've loved, I don't know if there's any more comforting passage of scripture than this. And I intentionally didn't put this on a slide because I just want you to hear it and receive it. This is what Paul says. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. We will see Jesus again. And we will see our Christian brothers and sisters again with Jesus forever.
Jesus has gone to prepare a place for us. And it's taken at least 2,000 years, so you know it's going to be glorious. And Jesus told the apostles, if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and I'll take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. I'm almost done. So what does the ascension have to do with you? What does the ascension have to do with us in 2021? Because Jesus ascended, you have the Holy Spirit always with you. Because Jesus ascended, he is always interceding for you, even when your mind and your heart is far from him. He is always interceding to the Father on your behalf. And because Jesus ascended, he is preparing a place for you, and he's coming back. That's the good news of the gospel. So let's pray. Holy God, um, there is a sense in which we don't deserve to even speak to you. We don't deserve to live in your presence. And yet, because of what Christ has done for us, we can approach your throne of grace with confidence. And we need it, Lord. Remind us that we need it. As we come to your table, Lord Jesus, draw our hearts and mind toward you. Let us partake in a worthy manner. And let us do it with joy and thanksgiving. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.